should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. My name is Dan Ashley, news anchor for ABC7 Television in San Francisco, member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and your moderator for today's program. Now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker and fellow North Carolinian, David Gergen, CNN senior political analyst and professor and co-director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Few people have the depth and breadth of David Gergen, who for decades has served as both political analyst and advisor for presidents including Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. Starting with the McNeil-Lair News Hour in 1984, he has been a regular commentator on public affairs for 28 years now. Twice he has been a member of uh, election coverage teams that won Peabody Awards, and he has contributed to two Emmy Award-winning political analysis teams. Mr. Gergen's distinguished work as co-director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School has enabled him to work closely with a rising generation of younger leaders, especially social entrepreneurs, military veterans, and young global leaders as well. A native of North Carolina, he is a member of the D.C. Bar, a veteran of the U.S. Navy, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an honors graduate of Yale and the Harvard School of Law. To give us a rational look at America's often irrational politics, it is a pleasure for the Commonwealth Club to again host one of America's most astute observers. Please welcome David Gergen. Thank you. David, we are delighted to have you here. Thank I you. I didn't realize we grew up eight, eight miles apart. We did. I should uh, say I, we, are, we are at odds right away because yeah. I'm a native Chapel Hill 
uh, <laughs> born and raised in Chapel Hill. He grew up in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, but I hate to admit it, we're also two generations apart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that could give me some satisfaction. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure it could. <laughs> uh, his father taught uh, math at Duke University. My father taught public health at the University of North Carolina. Right. Tar Heel and Duke Blue Devil. Um, Let's start with politics, David. We can sure. birdwalk all over the place, but let me ask, I'll begin with this. Are, are 16 candidates enough <laughs> in the Republican Party? Should we cap it at 20 or let it go wherever it goes? Well, it is a little bit like going to Ringling Brothers, Barlam and Bailey, and they, they bring out the, the, the VW, and 18 <laughs> clowns climb out, you know, it's like, and they just keep coming and coming, and you sort of wonder, when will they stop? Um, I, it's... it's, uh, it's it's so different. The parties have sort of flipped sides. For a long, long time, the Republican Party nominee for president was usually the heir apparent. The Republican Party operated largely like a corporation in terms of its executive talent, moving people up, waiting your turn. And it was the Democrats who had a free-for-all. You know, Will, Will, Will Rogers famously said, uh, I'm not a member of any party, I'm a Democrat. Uh, the, um, uh, and this time around, it's just the reverse. It's the, the, the Democrats are looking for the heir apparent. They've got their person. They know. I mean, she's still under challenge, but nonetheless, we, I think we know basically who the candidate's going to be. Uh, and as the Republicans are having their free-for-all, in some ways it's healthy. Um, you have to ask yourself, where is the Democratic bench? You know, what if something were to happen to Hillary? I mean, Joe Biden obviously is a, is a possibility, but there are not a lot of other players out there. Mm -hmm. And so you could say, from a Republican point of view, this is healthy. But obviously, it, 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 um, it's hard to keep it serious when Donald Trump starts throwing hang, lobbing hand grenades into the middle of things. And people start thinking, this is not a, this is not a campaign, this is a circus. Right. Um, and they're going to need some sorting out here fairly quickly before this takes on the gravi gravity of a serious presidential effort. David, how did this come to pass? How did we, we come to a point where the Republicans are in a bit of disarray, there isn't an heir apparent, uh, a readily identifiable uh, candidate? How did things switch? Well, I th in part, because Congress has been uh, held in such low repute, um, that it's been hard to find candidates who come out of that stable who look like their presidential material. It's not easy to run saying, I'm a member of Congress, I'm proud of what I do, and uh, mm. now I want, look at what I've done in Congress, now let me go be your president. That's not exactly a winning campaign slogan. Uh, the, uh, but it's also true the number of governors, and you know, the Republicans, to their credit, I mean, the, the positive side is that they have built up a bench. They do have a lot of governors who are competing, is this the hook already? Whoa. Uh, yeah. uh, We're okay. Okay. <laughs> Just um, some questions from yeah, the audience. It, but up. I'm not sure there's much to be. Look, I think the real question is how does this sort out? It, ordinarily, one would expect that at the end of the day, on a Republican side, there would be a mainstream candidate representing sort of the voices of the center right or just to the right, and there's going to be a hardliner you know, who comes from the more extreme right. Uh, and they will face off against each other. And typically, uh, while the hardliner gets hearts beating faster, there are a lot of votes for the nomination that come out of blue states. You know, not every state that matters in, at, the at, at the nomination. The votes of California actually count a lot at the, at the convention, right. even though they don't count much in the selection getting to the convention. 
but the, the so those votes are going to matter at the end of the day and usually a, the more mainstream candidate wins the nomination witness Romney uh, there are a whole lot of people to his right in the, in the, in the process and the, the the danger for the Republican candidate mainstream type candidate is that he or she gets pulled jerked to the right in order to win the nomination and you keep on getting jerked over and Romney went further and further right and whatever possibilities he had to win four years ago, which were not great to begin with, they just disappeared on him. Um, and that's the danger that a Jeb Bush faces, for example, uh, and potentially John Kasich, who is another mainstream type figure. Um, those are two of the most prominent, and one of the dangers is they'll get pulled right and be unelectable. Um, this pulled is, right in order to win the nomination. Yeah, and, and, to, and to keep keep the money flowing and to do all the other things. Uh, it... it the debates often have that effect. Now, this first debate is going to be, you know, it's going to get a fairly big audience. The first debate coming up here in early August with Fox, and CNN has a debate following on. But that's mostly going to be about the circus called Trump. Um, you know, that's going to be a, a lot of people, are going to, it's going to get a pretty good audience because of this. I mean, this Trump thing is just, is, is, there are two things that really have to be appreciated about what's going on with Trump. Um, he, or maybe even three things, but... He is um, he is in this more as a celebrity than as a serious possibility, right? Nobody thinks he's going to get elected, but he's doing so much better than anybody expected. He's smarter than people think. Behind all of that blarney is one smart cookie. I mean, he didn't build his financial empire because he's a dumb guy. Uh, he knows what he is doing. Uh, and he's appealing to the anger and the frustration that is on the right side of the Republican Party. There is a populist movement, or there's a great sense of populism, which is sort of a grass, the grassroots up anger part of politics that we've seen in the Tea Party, and that exists on the far right of the Republican Party that he's tapping into. In the same way that Bernie Sanders is, is tapping into a leftist, populist, angry group against Hillary. And they're both taking more, they're both gaining more airtime and more support than what I would have imagined. Who would have imagined Bernie Sanders getting over 30% in the polls and right. being within striking distance of Hillary in, Vermont, in New Hampshire? Uh, or he's getting big crowds in Iowa. Uh, so there's populism on both sides that Trump is, has shrewdly played into. But, and what it does is it, he's smothering the chances for anybody else to get a hearing. You know, Kasich declares serious candidate, very good governor of Ohio, would ordinary not times be seen as a heavyweight. He gets Zippo kind of coverage. Hillary goes out and gives a speech on the economy. Even she gets blitzed out. So that's happening on one hand. But there's a second part of this now, which is coming into play that keep your eye on if you might. And that is the question of whether Trump will get only so far, will get aggravated by the way people are jumping on him, and go third party. That's the danger that keeps Republicans awake at night. They think they've got a shot at this. I think I happen to think Hillary remains a very strong candidate, vulnerable but strong. Um, and but the Republicans, if there's a third party like Trump, it is a given among Republicans that in 1992, when it was Bill Clinton running 
against President Bush, H.W. Bush, President Bush Sr., he, when he was running for re-election, that Ross Perot cost Bush the election. Uh, Ross got 19%. He was not going to be president, but 19% is the biggest third-party vote in a long, long time. If Trump got in and could get 19 20%, that almost would guarantee Hillary winning the election. Donald Trump is sucking up all the oxygen at yep. the moment. And, and you're right, that risk of if he decides to go third party could be devastating the Republican Party. My theory is, I'd love for you to comment on this, is that uh, the Republican Party leadership uh, doesn't want Donald Trump anywhere near this, this campaign, really. Um, party. Yeah, exactly yeah, right. right. And, and if he plays the game, they'll weed him out as a nut or a TV host and not right. a serious candidate. So he's sort of refusing to play party politics very shrewdly to sort yeah, of cut them out of the equation and create his own power, not rely on the party's power. I think he's relying on his capacity, uh, his almost intuitive, spontaneous capacity to raise hell. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's, you know, he's just, he's a provo provocateur. And he's, he's very sure that his problem is, in order to keep getting attention, he's got to keep ramping it up a little bit. And that gets him into deep trouble, but as he died, got with McCain and brought the veterans out against him. You know, that was a very, you know, he, he can, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to know where the lines are if you're a provocateur, you know. Um, if you're a more prudent person, you've got lines all around you. He has no lines. He's got no boundaries, as far as we can tell. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Does he have staying power in this race as a provocateur and as a serious candidate? Will people I don't tire think, of him? Or? I don't think he's worth $10 billion, but he's got one hell of a lot more money than all the rest of them combined. Right. Yeah, and, that's, uh, and he doesn't have to go to Las Vegas to get it. I mean, he's got... Uh, 
you know, he doesn't have to depend on an independent patron. And I think, look, in part, his business, there's an interesting argument that whether Trump is being criticized or he's being praised, as long as people are talking about Trump, it's good for his business. And business people tell me, win or lose, he's getting a lot of attention, and this goes to his bottom line. And that means he could, you know, it's a self-fulfilling. The more he gets on his bottom line, the more capacity he feels he can he can spend. But there's that's, there's a cynicism about that. Is that destructive <laughs> to? <Yeah>. You think? <laughs> yeah. Well, but but and maybe that's even the wrong word. There's sort of a damaging effect to. Po- Is that good for American politics that we that that when, when, what what things have you seen recently that were good about American politics? <laughs> I mean, how much? I mean, our politics are going through. We're going through a pretty awful period right now. We're going to get out of this. You know, this too shall pass. But and we've had times like this in the past. But we've said this, David, for uh, 15 years now, probably. Yeah, but in the 80s and 90s, 1880s and 1890s, (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't there. I I know. I might have been, but don't worry about the. um, uh, (laughs) uh, Do you really think we'll get out of this? Or is this yes, the I new do. norm for I do. I do. I, I, I don't know whether we're going to get out badly or well, but I think we're going to come out of it because I think there's a new generation coming along which is sick of this stuff. It's, they know it's phony, it's Mickey Mouse, and they want to get rid of it. And they're, I'm starting to see signs the younger generation is going to go ahead and run for office. We're going to get some serious people, and we're going to stop this crap. Yeah, I do. This is what happened in 1880s and 1890s. We had a similar time, country extremely polarized, we had three presidential elections in a row that went 50-50. It was a 50-50 country, just like what we are right now. It was a very mean period in our time. It was the Gilded Age. You know, there were a lot of people getting very rich. There was a lot of inequality growing up. Uh, the industrialization was, was rapidly uh, moving forward. Uh, but our politics were rancid. We had a whole bunch of presidents your grandchildren will never have heard of. They won't have heard of many of today, but nonetheless, it, uh, and what happened was it brought on people like Teddy Roosevelt to get into the arena and change it. You know, Roosevelt's family told him, they were knickerbockers, they were called, I believe the best way to stay out of politics was stay out of it. Uh, the best thing to do about politics, or if you wanted to, the only way to look at the politicians was down your nose. Uh, and, you know, they, and the only thing worse than being a politician was being an actor. That's what his parents told him. <laughs> And Teddy went to the smoke-filled rooms in New York and grabbed hold and got in there. Uh, and people like Woodrow Wilson, who are much more effete, but, and, but you know, also got involved in the, in, the, uh, in the progressive movement. And it was a movement that was embraced by both the Republicans and the Democrats. We saw a Teddy Roosevelt Republican and a Woodrow Wilson Democrat who were iconic figures to their generation, but they helped lead their generation out of the traps and the miasma of the 80s and 90s. It can be done again, and I think it will be done again. Do you think that um, the political climate now with Congress at such record low approval ratings, politicians in general uh, held in many respects in such disdain, um, that, that has to be ultimately pretty bad for democracy and very tough to reverse, I would think. What's important about a democracy is how resilient you are. You know, we're gonna make mistakes. We're not smarter than anybody else in the world as a people, but we're very, very good at adjusting. You know, figuring it out, we're very practical people. We're very pragmatic. What is it that works? 
That's what tended to distinguish in our history. We're innovative. Our innovation is probably going to be our great saving grace economically. Um, and we, we sort of find our ways out of canyons and out of, you know, valleys. And I think that we will again. And I, I'm just telling you, I have the opportunity, the privilege really, of being in a classroom with a lot of the young people who are coming up. And I'm exposed to a lot of people, the millennial generation, probably some of your children, some maybe your grandchildren. The millennials were born between 1980 and 2000. Okay, so almost everybody in college today, in a normal four-year college, is, is a millennial. Uh, and it's, a, it's the biggest generation in American history, 40% minority, biggest minority population. They care deeply about diversity. There are a lot of problems at the lower end of this generation, the bottom half of this generation. There are a lot of health problems. They didn't, not enough of them finished school. They're not ready for the 21st century jobs. They've got, you know, they're, they're distracted by their electronics. They've got their minds, they don't have a good work ethic. They've got a lot of other problems. But if you look at the upper half, and especially the upper tier of this, which would be many of your sons and daughters, um, there's some terrific kids coming along. They care deeply about the country. They're very idealistic. They no longer believe that government is the answer to every problem, but they believe there are other answers. And a lot of them go, out, go off and start nonprofits. A lot of them sign up for nonprofits. I'm on the board for Teach for America, the national board, and I happen to believe deeply in what they do. And we had like 4,600 new core members out teaching in the toughest urban and the rural schools this last year, new ones. We had like 46,000 applications. It's hard to get into. Um, and the, these kids who go to um, go through Teach for America, they go off and they become principals. Uh, six, over 60% stay in public education reform. A lot of them go on school boards. We're we, we're helping to run some, helping some of them run for office. They become state education commissioners. They're starting charter schools, the KIPP schools, which are the biggest, most successful chain of charter schools in the country. Both they're all started by two Teach for America alums. There, there are just a lot of those folks out there. So there's one stream of young people who are the social change agents who want to change the country. And, and look how much they've already changed the country on gay marriage. A lot of this had to do with young people who mobilized the gay community, and not just the gay community, the friends of the gay community. Friend, every, everybody in this room who's not gay, I bet at least has five, five or six friends who are gay. And that makes a big difference. And they helped to mobilize this, and I give them a lot of credit for it. Uh, you know, this whole, uh, the, the whole effort to overturn this, by the way, had great impetus here in San Francisco, and your own federal district judge, Vaughn Walker, and the, and the opinion that he wrote, he happens to be a friend. Uh, and that was, a lot of the impetus has come from, come from this area of the country, but it's also come from that younger population. There is another group of young people, Dan, I don't mean to go on too long, let me no. just, if I've got the soapbox just for one more, more minute or two. Um, there's an, another group of young people to whom, for whom I have enormous respect, and those are the f folks who are coming back and taking off their uniforms after serving in Afghanistan and Iraq. You may not know as many of them. I hope you will get to know them over time. They're a very small percentage of the population. Only 1% of the country served. You know, this is not like World War II, like 13, 14, 15% served. Everybody had a family member who served. Today it's just 1%, which is unfortunate, and why we need national service, why we need to move toward everybody having a chance to give a year back to the country. 
but I've had a chance to work with these military veterans as well. I'm on a group called Mission Continues, which is Eric Greitens started out in St. Louis, which is terrific. But let me tell you about a young man I've been very close to for now 15 years. Um, uh, I got to know him, and he was a college senior. He was a college senior at uh, Harvard, and. Uh, he uh, gave the class day speech for his class when they graduated back in 2001, June of 2001. Um, and he asked the question, what is the call to greatness for our generation? What's going to be the call to greatness for our generation? And nobody knew. He didn't know. Uh, and against the wishes of his family, he went and signed up for the Marine Corps as an infantry officer. And along came 9-11. Uh, I kept asking him, you want to go into infantry? What about intelligence? You know, it may be safer, and I can probably help you get a job in intelligence. I, I don't know much about the infantry. I said, no, no, I want the leadership experience. I want to be out there. This is a hardcore deal. I want to go out there and be an infantry officer. That's fine. He went in on the first wave to Baghdad, came back here to Pendleton, to California, went in on the second wave, went in on the third wave. He, he was first wave into Baghdad, but he was served in Fallujah. He was in a lot of these god-awful places. And, and thankfully, came out intact. And by the way, he doesn't come from money. His dad works at a public golf course. Uh, he was all scholarship. And he'd finished three tours and, uh, and was going to come back and go to the Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School at Harvard. And uh, was about to start when David Petraeus was named commander of the forces, U.S. forces in Iraq. And Petraeus, who knew him, called him and said, would you come back in? Would you, would you re-up? And this young man did. He didn't have to, under no obligation. And he volunteered, went back into service, had a fourth tour, very dangerous stuff, got out, got through his two degrees. So he's got, now got three Harvard degrees and four tours in Iraq. Pretty good, right? And then he turned down Goldman Sachs, took a startup, a job with a startup in Texas. Then his friends from, he lives in northern Massachusetts, called him and said, we've got a congressman who's in real ethical trouble. Come, you've got to come back here and run against him. As a Democrat, save the seat uh, for Democrats. He's a centrist Democrat. Against all odds, he went back. First poll, after six months of work, his first poll found him 50 points back. 50 points back. His strategist, chief strategist said, you should quit and give your money to the opponents. So... <laughs> So he, he fired his strategist and uh, <laughs> hired his driver as a strategist, kept going, got elected. It was total upset, out of nowhere, got elected uh, to Congress. Now he's there now. Now, then he's, he's just passed his first bill, which a small business bill, which is great. And he's, he's on fire in the Congress. He's very bipartisan. He's working with Republicans every chance he gets. He thinks the politics we have today is crazy. And he's given his life to go in and change our politics. Let me just tell you one last piece of this story. The Boston Globe couldn't quite believe this story. They said this is too good to be true. So they went after his military records to find out, was he lying about his military records? Was he lying about his service? Had he really done all these things? And they, got his, they, they couldn't get his records. He wouldn't give them, give them his records. And they finally got a copy. And they looked and said, he didn't tell us the truth about his military record. If what he didn't tell us was that in Iraq, he got two medals for heroism. And he never told the voters. Because the Marine, you don't brag. And he thought his enlisted guys ought to have got the medal. And it turned out he had never told his parents. Never told his parents. That's right. That's right. And his name is Seth Moulton. I've, I've worked closely with him on his campaign, helped to raise money for him. 
And uh, I don't care if he's a Republican or a Democrat, I could care less. He's the kind of person we need more of in our politics, and I'm telling you, they're out there. We just need to encourage them, find them, and send them on their way. That great line, there's nothing. Yeah. That great line, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what is right with America. I, I one, agree with that. One of the totally great uh, characteristics of North Carolinians, by the way, is <laughs> great optimism. <laughs> yeah. um, David, if you would, and, and then we'll move on to some other issues. Well, but you know, it, 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 you come back to North Carolina in a second. It's a good example. We grew up in a state that was poor, where people were living in shacks, and, and it, it remains poor in eastern North Carolina. But it was, it was going nowhere. It was down near the bottom with everything. And today, because of the reforms that were put in place by the business community, by the political community, by the universities, the state is booming. It's got a low unemployment rate. It's one of the most innovative states in the country. The it's been transformed. It's one of the best places in the, one of the best places to raise kids and one of the best places to live. And it's uh, and we lived and watched a, a part of the country that was down and out, and nobody, everybody wrote it off saying and transforming itself and if you can do that in the southern part of america i'm just telling you it's easier to do it in the rest of the country now yeah. we'll be back with more here on friends on fridays with john zipper of commonwealth club right after this Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hey. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Yeah. Highlight, if you will, we're talking a lot about immigration uh, sure. these days on the campaign. As the, as the campaign moves into the next few months, uh, what are the issues that you would highlight for our audience to pay attention to and expect to emerge as key issues? Well, we're probably um, going to have uh, continuing debates over both Obamacare and the Iranian nuclear get deal, right? And, uh, and, and we're into a situation where President Obama very much needs Hillary to win to cement in those legacies. Um, and she needs his popularity to win. He needs to get his numbers up in order to make it easier for her to get there. So there's a really interesting uh, duet going on here. Um, beyond that, the, the, the fundamental issues that we face are how do we get this economy moving again? We're, we're going at about half speed still, uh, six years after a, a, a terrible recession. 
and it was a different kind of recession, so it's not unnaturally we would grow more slowly, but for this long, this, there's, something not, there's something not right here, and we don't have the answers yet, and I think there's going to there's gonna be a difference between the Republican solution and the Democratic solution. The Democratic solution is going to be in, involve much more government spending and much more government engagement, and much more government support for uh, people toward the bottom. Uh, and the Republican argument is going to be much more about laissez-faire and rising tide, lifts all boats, the old Kennedy line. And we're going to have a natural discussion about that. We are having a growing discussion, and I think it's a healthy one, about inequality. And, uh, you know, what's been happening out here on the West Coast uh, on, on raising the minimum wage is an important experiment here to see, you know, because a lot of conservatives say you raise the minimum wage too much, the jobs will disappear, so forth and so on. But you've got now San Diego, uh, I mean, you've got Los Angeles, and now San Francisco and Seattle. They're all moving to $15 uh, an hour for groups within the, uh, within the uh, service areas in particular. And we see some of that. And New York has just been moving toward $15 an hour. Uh, that's a big, important change. I happen to be for a much bigger minimum wage. I'm for a much stronger and earning income tax credit. I, I am for programs that give people assistance who are working. If you've got a job in this country, you're willing to work, we ought to be there with you to help you all we can. Uh, and, you know, but I don't know whether the Republicans are, I think the Republicans could stumble on this. The social issues are obviously lightning rod, and I, uh, we can talk about this a long time, but look, can I step back just for a minute? Please, whatever okay. you um, Essentially, coming in toward this election cycle, the history favors the Republicans. Typically, when a party has held the White House for two straight, presidential terms, the out party wins the next election. Enough disquiet, enough unhappiness over various issues builds up, and the out party gains strength and gets in. Uh, the exception was, was at the end of two Reagan terms when George H.W. Bush, the senior, uh, was elected, and that was really a Reagan three election. Uh, the people were sort of voting yes because of Reagan. Um, and and it, it, yeah, Bush ran a good campaign, but still it was a Reagan three election. Typically, people lose after the, the out party loses after after two elections. It also it true. It's also true. That American politics moves in cycles. It it moves left for a while and then moves right for a while. And we moved right, starting if you go back way back to uh, the Nixon period, 1968. The Republicans won five out of six elections, and then the pendulum moved left when Bill Clinton came in. And the Democrats have now won the popular vote in the last five out of six elections. So history would say the tide is about to turn and it will help Republicans. And I think, I think there are forces out there that are helping Republicans for this very reason. Okay, that's the, tide, that's the argument that favors Republicans. There is a counter argument that's, that has to do with the rapidly changing demographics of the country which favor the Democrats and favor Hillary. Uh, and it's the coming of this millennial generation because it's so big, and it's voted in the last couple of elections has voted heavily Democratic. You know, Barack Obama captured the millennial vote, did very well with them. The second part of the big demographic change, of course, Latinos. Uh, and a Republican needs 40% of the Latino vote to win the election. This last time Romney got 27. 
a Latino vote. You cannot win with 27. And then there are women. And we, you know, of course, and they vote in large numbers. Uh, it's the Democratic Party more than the Mommy Party, the Republican Party more than the Daddy Party. Um, and, and women on choice and all those other issues, women equal pay, respect for place in the workplace, all those other kind of issues. All of those factors face Hillary, uh, will favor Hillary. Those people may not necessarily turn out in the way they did for Obama, unless the Republicans piss them off. <laughs> and they're doing that. Uh, that is the danger Republicans face. They get out there with this extremism, you put a stick in the eye. Uh, uh, if you go after gay marriage, if you're an opponent of gay marriage and you really want to ram that home, you're going to lose a millennial vote. Millennials are heavily, they've decided this issue. They're 60, 70% in favor of gay marriage. So you can really easily antagonize the millennials. You go after immigration and all, all the rapists and criminals that Mexico is sending across our border per Donald Trump, you can write off the Latino vote if you really want to keep beating up on them. But David, he and, needs 40% of the Latino vote. Yes, he elected. does. It's political suicide then to do that. He must know these numbers. But Donald Trump? Donald Trump. He doesn't expect to get elected, I don't think. I, I think he's out there to race hell. If he forces the country more in his direction, breaks up the establishment, that from his point of view is a victory. Um, and he gets his name out there, that's, that's all a victory. And then, then you get the third group, the women, and you, you've got to be careful here. This, this attack on Planned Parenthood, you know, maybe those, those two films that have come out were doctored. We, have, we need to know more about those films. We do need to understand what the heck's going on with this fetal tissue, Planned Parenthood. But to attack Planned Parenthood just you know, across the board is to take on one of the most important institutions for women in the country. There are too many people on the Republican side who think Planned Parenthood is just an abortion mill for black girls who got knocked up or Latino girls or whatever. And the truth is Planned Parenthood provides services for a huge number of white women, young white women who are middle class, who went to college, they leave home, they need somebody to go to, they need some place they can have some privacy, and they get a lot of help from Planned Parenthood. And they're very deeply committed, as they should be. It's been a good organization. And we shouldn't, if Republicans let this issue, these two films, get them way over and beating up and they defund Planned Parenthood, as they're trying to do now in the Congress, they're going to pay a price for women. I mean, they're going to because other people are going to rally and say, wait a minute, do you know what this organization really does? What the real numbers are on this? Um, and the real numbers suggest an organization that has done a lot, probably for our sons and daughters, without us even knowing it. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California program, and our guest today is noted political commentator and Harvard University professor David Gergen, who is discussing the socio-political landscape of the United States. Uh, David, let's turn to uh, this Iran deal. Sure. And uh, you want to, one of your colleagues on CNN says this deal is, is just the only way that we will be able to protect the country and protect that part of the world. Your thoughts on whether or not uh, that approach was the right one, the most effective way to deal with this question? Let me put it this way. Um, I, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in the last 10 days talking to heavyweights in foreign policy um, from past administrations and uh, on both sides of the aisle. And, and I would say there's a surprising degree of consensus uh, among them, and they know a lot more about this than I do. but. Um, that point one, 
this agreement is not all that one would have hoped. It, it does have its flaws. But the road that we were going down was an exceedingly dangerous one. Bob Gates, the former defense secretary for both Republican George Bush and for Democrat Barack Obama, has told me more than once that the Iran issue is the most difficult issue he'd faced in 50 years in foreign policy making. Because increasingly, we were in a situation, even with sanctions, that they were trying to go pell-mell to get the bomb. And we were increasingly getting to the point, the breakout time was down to two or three months, increasingly getting to the point where we were going to face this issue. Do we bomb the Iranians? in which case we could get sucked into a, a war that makes Iraq look like a Tea Party, or do we learn to live with the bomb? And frankly, there were a lot of military army officers I knew, almost every general I knew, and I knew I had privilege to know quite a few, didn't want to go to war. And they'd rather live with the bomb, as we live with the bomb with the Russians for so long, than to get into a war. Would, a, war a war would suck us in, uh, they would be create, you know, the Iranians would inevitably retaliate in various ways. There'd be sleeper cells that would come alive, and there'd be all sorts of terrorism, and we would then feel compelled to go in and decapitate the regime. And that means you've got to put brutes on the ground. So it, would, it was a messy situation, and nobody, you know, they looked at those two alternatives and said, oh my God, we don't like either one of those. And here comes Obama and bets on what people thought probably couldn't happen, couldn't work, which was diplomacy. And I frankly think he deserves a lot of credit for going after a diplomatic solution to this. I think John Kerry, this was one of the crowning achievements of his career, I think he deserves a lot of credit for going after it. The, the deal itself, frankly, I do think is flawed. When you, one diplomat, former diplomat told me, this is a bad deal whose time has come. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting way to think about it, right? Yeah. That's an interesting way to think about it. And so there are, but with a deal, you can at least move forward and massage that deal. Oh, well, right? it's hard to massage the deal once you sign on. Or if, evolve uh, the deal, I guess. You, you gotta, what it does mean is, uh, Tom Friedman has an interesting column in the Times today about what steps we ought to be taking. I agreed with much of it. What it means is that we are, that, look, I think here's the consensus of the heavyweights. One, flawed deal, but nobody has a better alternative. Secondly, the deal is probably here to stay uh, in some basic form. It's not increasingly less what Obamacare looks like. It's probably here to stay. Um, and you got to get used to that and then figure out what to do with it. Thirdly, if, you're going to, if the deal is here to stay, the United States cannot afford to pivot away from the Middle East. If anything, we're going to have to get more deeply involved to enforce the deal and to contain Iran so it doesn't become a hegemonic power that's banging up against the Sunnis and we get, get a Sunni, uh, you know, uh, uh, Shia fight going, which could easily happen. So you do need to have a very tough containment policy. We did that with the Soviet Union for a long time. You gotta contain them on their nuclear stuff. You gotta enforce the deal, you know, all the way around. And you gotta contain them on terrorism. They're gonna get a ton of money out of this deal when the sanctions are lifted. And Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor, already said some of that money's gonna go into terrorism. They know that. And there are hundreds of millions of dollars involved. This puts Israel, by the way, in, 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 in the short hairs. I mean, Israel, this is a really, really not good deal for Israel. It, it's taking a lot of risk for Israel. Uh, 
but the other point, so you've got to have a containment policy, you've got to stay involved. But the other point that I just wish to drive home a little bit is, here's the, the big gamble. The big gamble is not in the short term. It's going to be hard for them to develop a nuclear weapon in the short term. We bought maybe 10 years when they're not going to have a nuclear we we weaponry. But at the end of those 10 years, so many things get lifted, they can then go for the weapon. They can then go for the bomb. And if you're Israel, you know, and you, you're a 2,000-year-old civilization, the passage of 10 years and suddenly you're going to face a nuclear Iran is very, very threatening because that's just the blink of an eye in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so there's a big fear what happens at the end of the 10 years. That's the gamble. Our gamble is, what Obama is gambling, is that there's a younger generation coming on in Tehran, the old guys will die off, the Ayatollahs will go away, and if you look at younger Iranians, they're very different and very much more modernized, and they will then not want to go to war with us. So that's the gamble. They won't want a nuclear weapon particularly, they're not going to feel very threatened. What we ought to be doing in that sense is accelerating to the degree we can the, the, the more contemporary outlook and the Iranian people become more, more democratic and have a bigger voice, that is in our interest. I had a friend named Linda Mason, she's a, at the Kennedy School, um, used to run the Mercy Corps, ran a big startup, very successful. She was on a delegation that went to Tehran. Um, and she came back with the same quote that Tom Friedman has today, and that is, if you walk around Tehran, which she found you know, very, very peaceful, she was amazed at how warmly she was greeted as an American. Even though all these signs, down with Satan, America go to hell, and all the rest of that, is manufactured by the government. That if you talk to the people in Iran, they are actually very pro-Western at the younger level. She said talking to people in Tehran on the streets was like feeling like you were in South Korea. Hearing about the regime felt like you were in North Korea. You know, so you got a government that looks like North Korea and a country that looks like South Korea. What you want to do is make the whole, the whole deal looks like South Korea, and then, then the world could be a lot safer. So there is a gamble inherent in this, and we're, it's going to be a while. You'll be covered. It'll be great. It'll be a really, it'll be a very important story. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. 
and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Literally, probably 10 years ago, on your point, yeah. we had a reporter in Iran covering unrest, and he said he was covering a, a you know, Down With America rally, right. and they're out chanting in the streets, the government gets them out there whipped up, and he's talking to a guy, he's standing next to a guy, and he's shouting death with America to America with his sign, and he literally leans over to him and says, hey, how the Yankees do today? That's a great story, Dan. And he goes, death Damn, that reminds me. He said he couldn't believe it. You know, the guy was very friendly. He was sort of doing his duty for the Yeah, yeah. It reminds me when Clinton went to some rally, and I think it was India, actually, and somebody yelled out, young man yelled out, go home, America, and take me with you. Excellent. I want to leave the Middle East in a moment. I want to talk, get your thoughts on, on this this continuing war or, or effort to contain first Al Qaeda. Now we talk about ISIS. ISIS. Where is the war on terrorism? Where do we expect it to go? And what needs to be done from the U.S. perspective? Well, in contrast to I think the persistence and the sense of strategy that the administration had on the Iranian talks. I think it lacks strategy and lacks a destination point in, in Iraq, especially in Syria. Um, and we don't know what we're trying to do there right now. Um, there is a very, very growing danger that we'll have a fragmented Iraq um, with, with, with enormous amount of Iranian influence in the country. The only, the, the only fighters who are any good against ISIS are the Kurds, who want a whole separate, you know, uh, more autonomous region for themselves as a price. Um, and the militias, not the Iranian army, but the militias, as they're called. And those militias are very pro-Iranian. And they're the ones who are doing the best fighting. So as, as we clean out ISIS, as we will gradually, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make some more ground there. What we're going to find is we're going to exchange having ISIS there for having Iran there, and that's not such a good outcome. But in, in Syria, the question is even more serious because we have no strategy whatsoever in Syria. We have no clue where we're going, uh, and it's very tough. You know, it was disclosed recently in, in Ash Carter's testimony as defense secretary that our plan was to have 5,500 uh, uh, fighters trained up in the first year of this program uh, in Syria we're going to get 5,500 sort of tribal folks to come in, get cleaned up, get trained, have, be, have their weapons, and get going. And uh, a year later, we have 60. Um, the, the, but that's, just, that's the gap between our, our hope versus the reality. And uh, we've, got, we've got a long way to go. So what that all means is that the, the, for this administration and the next administration, it's going to be very, very important to develop a strategy for the Middle East, 
that deals with Iran, but also deals with ISIS, deals with Israel, deals with Egypt, goes, takes all of these things into, into account. So we have some sense of where are we trying to go, who are we trying to go with, what are the milestones, how do we measure success, what do we do if this doesn't work, what does it mean for pivot to Asia? You've got a lot of questions out there. Um, uh, I happened to see Henry Kissinger the other day. He's 93 years old, but he's thinking as clear as well. Um, and uh, he's very worried about this strategy question. And we talked. I talked to him about how well do you know Jake Sullivan? He is a Hillary Clinton's top national security person. He's a wonderful young man. He's I knew him for, for less. He's like Seth. I've known him for 15 years, um, and he's very very smart. But what I'd like to see is the Henry Kissingers of the world on the Republican side be sitting down with the Democratic and Republican strategists on both sides. Can we come to up with a strategy that's bipartisan in nature that's not going to bend with every election? Uh, and as we did after, after World War II, what happened after World War II is that Harry Truman, who inherited great advisors from Franklin Roosevelt and was Harry Truman's superb president, but he had some real heavyweights surrounding him, and they came up with the containment strategy with Paul Nitze and George Kennan and, you can, and John McCloy and Averill Harriman, you can go through the list. And they put together a containment strategy under a Democratic president that was then embraced by the next Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, and that we, we pursued containment through, through Democrat and Republican for half a century, and it succeeded. It was one of the great triumphs of American uh, international diplomacy. And we can do that again. But some of our political figures have to put down some of their, their axes, stop demonizing each other, and figure the damn thing out. You know, so we have a strategy. David, let me turn uh, quickly to Cuba. A member of the audience would like to know, in the current political climate, will the travel embargo be fully lifted anytime soon? And just your thoughts on... Well, we've opened, a, no we've opened an embassy. I assume we're going to be opening up travel you know, pretty quickly. And I mean, you know. a year or two or less? Yeah, or I would think in the next couple. I, th I would think Obama's going to want to get this done before he leaves office. Don't you think? I mean, that makes the natural. And, and comment on the importance of that decision. Well... Uh, two quick things. One is... Uh, I thought we got less out of the bargain than we should have. I, I don't, I, in that negotiation, I thought the president gave, we, we didn't use any leverage. We got, we got nothing in terms of democratic reforms in Cuba to help the people of Cuba. What we did was we agreed to just drop our opposition and change strategy. Having said that, you know, so I, don't, I, don't, I didn't think much of the negotiation. Having said that, the, we were in a situation where for years and years and years we've had a contradictory policy, just flat out contradictory through Republican and Democratic administrations. And Obama got rid of that. And the contradiction was this, that we looked at China and said, well, the best way to get China to, you know, have communism go away in China is to trade like hell with them. You know, open up the trade lanes, work with them, get them things going back and forth, and they'll drop communism. And lo and behold, that's pretty much what has happened, right? I mean, there's a lot of nationalism in China right now. There ain't a lot of communism in China. Um, and, and in the old-fashioned set. Whereas with Cuba, we said, cordon them off, strangle them, you know, do whatever we can, make sure nothing that gets in gets out, except hospital supplies and the like, and that will bring them around to democracy. Well, those two kind of, you know, it's like 180 degree out. Uh, total contradiction. Obama recognized that contradiction and moved. I think he did the right thing doing it. I wish we'd gotten more out of the deal. Right. 
Uh, and, and I'd like to go to Cuba. I bet you will. I understand the, the uh, my son, but both my kids have been down there illegally. You know, they got down there one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> like, but he says the, uh, the, uh, the diving down there is superb on the backside of the island. <laughs> it's supposed to be magnificent. I agree. Yeah. I've heard the same thing. Um, and part of that optimism comes from the quality of young people that I think are coming. Uh, but part of it is if you look at if you look at how well we're doing, we, we knock ourselves pretty hard, but major industries around the world, you know, we're, we're way out in front on uh, life sciences, and, and we're way out front on energy research right now, and we're way out front on, uh, on high tech, uh, and we're increasingly out front on sort of these uh, um, 3D computing, I mean, and- 3D and, printing. 3D printing. Um, uh, I, I like to tell folks that I, I remember not long ago The Economist, the wonderful magazine, had a cover on 3D uh, printing, and, uh, and and it was a cover with just a blue sky and a Stradivarius violin that was floating, you know, there in the sky. <laughs> um, now I don't have much reason to talk about Stradivarius violins very often. It just doesn't come up at our supper table very often. <laughs> Cocktail party. The last time I really thought, of Dan, about a Stradivarius violin was uh, when my daughter got married. Now, you may think that's awkward, uh, you know, irrelevant, but when you have your daughter get married, I guarantee you some of you haven't, haven't, haven't yet had this experience. You have a distinct feeling that you're giving away your Stradivarius to an, <laughs> you're giving away your Stradivarius to an orangutan. The, uh, 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 the, uh, and uh, true, uh, but that Stradivarius came out of a 3D computer, and those things are becoming, you know, ever more popular now. We're way out in front of it. We have the capacity. We're the most innovative people on earth. There is nobody. Who come at, in no big country that approaches. There are some small countries. The Israelis are extremely innovative. The Swiss are very innovative. Not, uh, you know, there are some other countries in and 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 Sweden and like Finland particularly that are innovative. We're the big country that's way out in innovation. And Klaus Schwab, who runs a world, built a World Economic Organization, World Economic Forum, makes the argument now: if you want to judge the future of a country, you want to assume where it's going. Don't measure it just by its GDP growth. Look at its rate of innovation. And the most innovative countries are going to be the countries that are going to succeed the most in the future. And we have that in our genes. Now, what we have to do is learn how to live together and take responsibility for one another and have a sort of a sense of common destiny and raise this young generation as best we can. And those of us who are older ought to clean up as much as we can, then we ought to get the hell off the stage and welcome this younger generation because they're going to be terrific. Thank you very much. <laughs> Our thanks to David Gergen, CNN po senior political analyst and professor and co-director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. We also thank our audiences here in the room and on radio, television, and the internet. So glad that you've been with us. I'm Dan Ashley, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is officially adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. <laughs>